0: You are now listening to the March 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Christian Ease 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christian Ease 101.
1: My name is Dawn and I'm your host for our program series Christianese 101. Have you heard of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit? Paul writes about it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23, which says, "But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control." Against such things, there is no law. For today's program, we'll talk about gentleness, which is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, as well as a characteristic of Jesus. When you hear the word gentleness, what do you think of? The Greek word prouts, which is translated into gentleness, means a wild horse that has been tamed. I was surprised when I read the meaning. It was so different than what I pictured for the meaning of gentleness. That is because when I think of a wild horse, the first thing that comes to my mind is a horse that is rough and strong. No one can ride a horse that has never been ridden before. An owner of a wild horse breaks it of its wild nature and trains it to suppress its natural instincts and follow the voice of its owner through this training process it will allow the owner to sit on its back without bucking him off go when it is told to go and jump when told to jump this state is called prouts gentleness Gentleness suggests a change of state where we are trained from our natural evil selves into obedience to the voice of our master. Rather than following our own instincts, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit also suggests a characteristic of Christians. There is a person that God complimented of being gentle. That is Moses. In Numbers chapter 12 verse 3, God said, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now, let's see what kind of person was Moses. At first, he was the prince of Egypt who struck down another Egyptian that was oppressing the Hebrews. Then, he was trained in the wilderness, leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land as a leader directed by God. Strictly obeying God's word, God acknowledges his gentleness and meekness more than anyone else. Jesus also says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus also prayed to his heavenly Father on the night of his capture. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Even though he is one with God, he doesn't think of himself, but rather displays perfect gentleness through absolute obedience. As stated in the beginning, gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. If we become and live as the children of God through Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, this fruit will naturally bear within us. Is the fruit of gentleness growing within you? Are you living not by your own instincts, but by following the voice of our owner, Jesus Christ? I pray that we will live our lives with gentleness as we go when God tells us to go and stop when he tells us to stop. Goodbye, and see you next week.
2: To Thee, my Savior, I
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth without the shock value and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and
1: You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels.
3: Well, today we begin lesson number two of three when it comes to temptation. This teaching series is from the sex spiral, forgiven and free from pornography. And yes, yes, you can be both... At the same time, you can be both forgiven and free. Do you believe that? Yeah, I think many of us think that's like wishful thinking. But I'm here to show you, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to give you my life to prove to you that that's absolutely true. And it's all by the grace of Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's lesson, it's titled, The Pleasure of Sin. We all know that there's lots of pleasure in our sin, right? If it didn't bring pleasure, if it didn't bring some sort of satisfaction or fulfill some type of need, we wouldn't keep doing this, would we? No, of course not. The problem, though, is that the pleasure is... It's temporary. It, it just, it never seems to last very long. So we're always having to go back and, and take another drink from whatever well we're drinking from, right? The writer of Hebrews, he, he was talking about Moses uh, when he wrote about this idea of the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is fleeting. The ecstasy of porn or, or the affair, it, it's momentary. It's short-lived. You know, I'm, I, the, the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it comes to mind. Remember, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give them, ah, yeah, they're never going to be thirsty ever again. <laughs> do, do you remember her response? And She's like, well, give me some of that water. That's the water that I want. I mean, don't we all want some of that water? In this podcast, we're going to learn three things. Number one, how temptations come from our own desires. Number two, the longer I wait to pray, flee, or confess, the weaker I become. Number three, our decision to not quickly exit the spiral is indeed a decision to sin. So let's get started with today's lesson This is the pleasure of sin. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation, parosmos. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted, don't say, well, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So a lot of people will go, you know, Satan's tempted me again. I don't want to be tempted. It's, it's, It's Satan. And I would say, look at this passage, and it's not Satan tempting you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says temptation comes from our own hearts. We want, At the end of the day, we want to do this. And we'll, we'll see that here in a second. There's something inside of us. We have to understand, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time. Now, he's got demons that may tempt you from time to time. But uh, we're just normal guys in here doing normal things. Satan himself is not tempting us to go do something stupid and sin. Satan is like running a demonic empire, right? He's worried about ISIS right now and or dealing with, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? My, my point is that let's check our heart because at the end of the day, I will give myself an excuse to go sin. Sometimes I'm even waiting for the temptation or I'll plan it, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, turn your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Notice the Apostle Paul says, not if you're tempted, but when you're tempted temptations are going to come. So why do we act so surprised when they do come? I want to challenge you in in that thinking is the test or the temptation is an opportunity to move from here to here. It's a way to glorify God in that to where you can, instead of getting pushed back onto your heels, that you can actually take a step forward and go, okay, let's go. I've got a a choice. I've and I can call him right now or I can stop what I'm doing and I can leave. I can confess or flee. I can do something that I've never done before. And then all of a sudden, and by the way, if you guys, you guys know this, it only takes a few minutes to actually do that. When the temptation rises to where you're getting ready to plan to do something stupid, that only lasts for a very short period of time, right? And then I can call my buddy and go, I'm, I just need you to talk to me. I just need you to... To walk me off the ledge here so I can get past this, right? Because if I choose not to do that, then I am going to be stuck here. And I would, I would just want to encourage you guys, man, there is so much freedom in, in doing this. 1 Peter 4:12. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Peter writes. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, as if something were strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it's revealed to all the world. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through. When I ask how you guys are are doing, a lot of times I hear this. Well, good, good. You know, I'm still being tempted, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. You guys hear other guys saying that or you recognize yourself saying that? I, I'm doing good, but I'm still, well, yeah. The temptations are never going to go away. The trials are never going to away. Because it's the only way that we get to prove our obedience to what we say we believe in. And that's why the doing part of this is so important in in an obedience-based ministry. That's why the the purity plan is so important that you guys are actually in the word doing the work. Because when you're not doing the work and you come here and you're confessing the same sin over and over and over and over again, it just just pushes you back into your shame, right? And there's this huge disconnect and that's why we, we feel like such a hypocrite and loser. Does that make sense? So don't be surprised when you're tempted. Matthew 18, 7 says, What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. And this is the part I want you to highlight. Temptations are inevitable. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. Some of your translations may say it's necessary that temptations come or temptations must come. But temptations are inevitable. So how do we prepare for these trials? How do we prepare for these tests? How do we prepare for the temptations? How do we go from playing defense to offense, right? You guys know that like, there are uh, over a thousand different types of psychotherapies, secular psychotherapies, from behavior modification to try to make yourself better. A thousand of them. And yet, there's only one gospel that can actually do the healing. Because everybody wants to be healed. Not everybody wants the Jesus that goes with the healing, right? This is a, a really cool passage that I learned from Ken Nair. And I went to the, the Ken Nair, uh, con- we didn't go together. We were, you know, he had his wife and I was <laughs> with Amy. <laughs> Let me make that straight right now. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 28.10. Isaiah is called a major prophet. The difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet in the Bible is simply the length of the book itself. Isaiah 28, verse 10. He tells us everything over and over, one line at a time, one line at a time. A little here and a little there. See, moral, moral change takes place when you guys read God's word over and over from cover to cover. His commands and his, his, the learning that, that happens, it happens on top of previous commands. So you learn something yesterday, you start to apply that, you read this morning, you come here, and then you apply what you, what you learned on top of this, and it just starts to build. It's a little by little, precept by precept, command by command. Romans 12, 2, you guys should be very familiar with this. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, there's that word again, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is the will of God? It's your holiness. It's your purity. You can write down 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 verse 3. Talks about that. What is the will of God? It's your sexual purity. God's very specific. Looking at your worksheet, if we choose not to flee or confess the temptation, number one, the temptation now gives me the opportunity to enjoy the pleasure of sin. If we choose not to flee or confess the temptation, number one, it gives me the opportunity to enjoy the the pleasure of sin. So number two, put another way, the temptation, it now it creates an environment to spend time with and love my idol. The temptation now creates an environment to spend time with and love my idol. And number three, the temptation now provides the right set of circumstances to indulge in the satisfaction and enjoyment of my sin. The temptation now provides the right set of circumstances to indulge in the satisfaction and enjoyment of my sin. Because the longer I wait to confess or flee, the weaker I become. Why is that? Because we're obsessed and we're consumed by the pleasure of the sin. See, it's the pleasure that we can't control. And your decision to not quickly confess or flee is, a, is indeed a decision to sin. If we don't do that, these things, once again, are inevitable. It will happen. It'll take you further into the spiral itself. Did you catch that? It's the pleasure of sin that we can't control. I'm not necessarily talking about the, the orgasm itself, because there's pleasure throughout the whole chase of sexual sin. There's pleasure throughout the whole game. And the problem is that we think we can control this thing, right? The reality is that we are taking God's grace for granted, though, when we do that. He's so patient with us that we, he wants us to repent through the gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit. But what's the problem? The problem is most of us don't want to listen to those gentle nudges, do we? We actually think that we're good at playing this game and not getting caught uh, until, of course, the consequences come into play. And there are so many consequences that I want to spare you from. And I pray that's one of the, the reasons that you're listening to this podcast. You know, all the dumb things that I did, all the sinful things, all the hurtful things that I did, all the pain that I went through because I refused to exit this spiral by praying by confessing, by fleeing. But you know what? There's actually a really simple consequence that we can avoid by preventing unwanted pornography in our home. And that's by installing Covenant Eyes accountability and filtering software on every single one of your computers and and laptops and mobile devices, uh, iPads, you name it. You can... Avoid exposing your family and your friends from the evils of pornography. And it, it, make no doubt about it, this is evil. Well, thank you so much for listening. to. I'm your host, Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, man, I want to invite you to the weekly community group from seven places. It's for men, women, husbands, wives, single, divorce. Everybody is welcome. You are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow me on Twitter at PurityPastor. Rate the show on iTunes. I would love for you to do that. And if you have a question, visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power, the power that's in the very name of in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I love you and look forward to our time again.
1: listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Holy Branch of the Lord, Part 1, based on Isaiah chapter 4 verses 2 through 6. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
4: Have you ever noticed how different communities have different ways of describing and understanding beauty or what is pleasing to the eye? Have you ever noticed how some cultures might say that something is beautiful, that as you look at it, you might just not get I think we see this all over the place. For instance, if you were to go online, you could look up African Ethiopian tribe, the Suri people, where we're told that there in that community, women will actually remove their bottom two teeth on purpose, right? And they will put a plate inside their lip, and they'll gradually put a bigger and bigger plate until their lip can basically hold like a platter, right? And this is the value that they place in that. When she gets married, the bigger the plate, the bigger the dowry. Like a small plate, you're talking like 40 cows. You get a big plate in there, you're talking like upwards of 60 cows. That's beauty you might have heard before about Chinese women who for close to a thousand years have actually bound their feet because they value small feet as being beautiful to the point that if you look at some Chinese women's feet of the past they're actually the same size as an iPhone and I'm not talking the 6s I'm talking the small one right like that's small and that is beauty and their culture well our culture we have our own standards of beauty don't we And we can see this, that that there's certain things that we see as beautiful. So, for instance, if you were to look it up, you would find out that this past year, 2016, Americans spent $16.9 billion on plastic surgery. Why? Because we value beauty. And maybe we disagree about what that thing is that we're calling beauty, but I think in all of these cases, what you see is that there is something that just seems to be a basic human need for beauty and a desire to be beautiful. Well, we see that, I believe, all over the place in the Bible as well here's the problem. I think that so often the places that we are looking for beauty are the wrong places, the places that God doesn't direct us. So often we are looking at the physical when God is trying to drive us towards the spiritual. Uh, You'll remember last week that that's kind of where we left off with Israel and Judah, right? So Judah, we're told that they were haughty and proud of their looks and the beautiful things that they had found in the nations to make them beautiful before the nations. And God sent war to devastate them and left them, the daughters of Zion, seven to one, looking for a guy who would actually give them a new name and take away their shame. Well, this week what we're going to find is, is that God actually shows up and gives them an answer to the thing that they looked for. He is sending them the answer to their pursuit of beauty, and he gives it to them in the form of this branch of Yahweh that is glorious and beautiful, and so we're going to be looking at God's response this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 4 verses 2 to 6. We are right back in the middle of our looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah. And here what we're going to see this morning is that God is now speaking to his remnant. Here's something that's great. You'll remember that this section began in chapter 2 with an end of days picture of what that last day would look like for the nations. In between, things look really bad, and at the end, here in this last little section that closes this section off, we see another image of the last of days where God is giving His people some hope amidst this promise of devastation. Hopefulness, devastation, more hope. I don't think it's chronological, but what we find here is is a picture of what God has promised for His people. I think Walter Brueggemann got it right speaking of Isaiah 4 in this section. He says, "...the book of Isaiah..." already in these early chapters sees that there is a coming crisis and possibility of Judaism beyond the devastation of the exile and here's the hope that he gives the people of Judah there is a day coming where God is going to restore your fortunes in other words Isaiah tells Judah things will get worse before they get better but they will get better that's the hope And so here's the good news this morning. We're going to see this, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, our big overall point. It's this, that God will make His people more beautiful and glorious than they can make themselves. I think that's what He wants them to see in these verses. God can make His people more beautiful and glorious than they can make themselves. That's God's good news for us today. Now, we'll see this in a number of ways, but first, look with me in verse 2, where we see what I describe as a branch with a crown, Look there again with me at verse 2 and what it says. It says, "...in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel." Now, what or who is this branch that they should be on the lookout for? See, you'll remember Isaiah 2 showed us the nations flooding the Mount Zion to worship God on that day. Isaiah 3 just showed us that on a day of the Lord that the daughters of Zion would be humiliated and humbled, right? Probably through exile to Babylon. But here in 4, 2-6, Isaiah foresees out of this rubble that he just told them about, a branch of the Lord that shall shoot up which is beautiful and glorious. Now, People have interpreted this branch in a couple of ways. Some people have seen this branch as a branch with leaves, and others have seen this branch as a branch with a crown. Now, in other words, what that means is some, when they see this branch, uh, what they have understood it is, is that God has come back and he has blessed nature. And so, you know, the trees spring up to life and they are fruitful. Uh, They're not war ravaged anymore. They are not destitute anymore. The fruitful land has returned. And that fits the second half of this verse where you see the fruit of the land will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Israel. So that's why some have looked at this and they've noticed, okay, we do see that the branch in the Bible, sometimes it's a a description of this coming Messiah from the tribe of David. But here, I mean, just looking at the second part of the verse, it's really clear that he must be talking about a branch with leaves. What's interesting though is, this is not just any old branch. Did you notice that? This is the branch of the Lord Yahweh. And catch this, the branch of the Lord never describes literal growth of plants and trees elsewhere in the Old Testament. And as Alec Moyer says, it is always elsewhere a title pointing to the Messiah in his kingly and priestly offices. You see, branch is a family metaphor, right? You've got like the family tree that maybe you've traced out, maybe you've done that yourself. Well, here God says, I've got a family tree. Now here's what I think is fascinating, a lot of things here, but Jeremiah 23, 5, he speaks of the righteous branch of David. And I believe the righteous branch of David is also this branch of Yahweh, this branch of the Lord that's spoken of in this text. I think it's the same branch. Now the righteous branch of David, of course, originates in David, but he also, I believe here we are told, originates in Yahweh, the covenant God of David, See, this beautiful and glorious branch would spring forth from both Yahweh and David. Of course, we know this this to be King Jesus, right? Who is both fully God and fully man, being born of the tribe of David and conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus who is a branch with a crown. He is unlike any man that you have ever seen before. That's what this text is pointing us towards. This, this man, unlike anyone you have ever seen before, he's not like the prophet Muhammad, right? He, he's not just a man who had a vision. This is the God-man who actually is God. That means that Jesus was uniquely all that it meant to be fully God. Even when he humbled himself and taking on human flesh, he never relinquished any of his godness. I don't miss this. Beauty is really all about what is precious to the senses. And according to the Bible, we were all in one degree born ugly in this sense. We were born with sin natures. So if you read through Romans 1-3, to God tells us that sin and ugliness is a human problem. It's not just something that Gentiles struggle with. It is a problem that Jews are born with. So there, God tells us that He looked down on all of humanity. Every one of us in our sin and our shame, both Jews and Gentiles. And he said to all of humanity, this was his verdict, all have sinned and fallen short of my glory. That means my glorious presence should not dwell with you because you are not deserving. You are sinners. In fact, catch this. He goes on to say in Romans, your best deeds on your best day are filthy rags. Does that sound attractive? It's grosser if you look it up. Our best deeds the most beautiful thing that we could produce, that has been done, that we have done, all of those things, God says, are ugly before me. See, God had not seen anything that pleased Him about man for some time. It's only His mercy and grace that permitted us. But when Jesus arrived... When Jesus arrived, we find in Matthew 1 that He says, let me give you a family tree. He comes from the line of David, this, this King, this Messiah, Jesus. But not only that, we get to Matthew 3 where God rents the heavens. He opens them up at His baptism, right? Where He's being anointed publicly as the King. And there we find that He's not just a son of David. God says, this is My beloved Son with whom what I am well Pleased, He had not been pleased for a long time. But when he sees this man, Jesus, the Messiah, fully God and fully man, he says, I am very pleased, very happy. He loves what he sees in his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is beautiful and glorious to God because he is God with us in human flesh. He's not a a way to God. He is the only way to God, and He is very God for sinners who abandoned God and were cut off. But catch this. Jesus isn't just beautiful and glorious to God the Father and God the Spirit. He's also beautiful and glorious to the survivors in the second half of this verse. But here's a question. What does a branch with a crown have to do with the second part of the verse? Where it says, And the fruit of the land shall be the honor and pride of the survivors of Israel. You know, what is this fruit? Well, you'll notice that the promise of sweet fruit of the land is for the survivors of Israel. Not the conquerors or the victors, but the survivors. And I'm guessing this message, when it dropped on their ears for the first time, was probably around about the time that they had been living in peace and prosperity, maybe during Uzziah's reign of 52 years things were probably going well. They didn't expect to hear bad news because the news had been pretty good. They had prosperity. Things seemed to be comfortable. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, guess what? There are going to be a few survivors, and I am going to present you with the glorious and beautiful branch of the Lord, and it is going to be fruitful with you. And they're thinking, well, who is it that's going to survive, Right? See, I think here Isaiah actually tempers Judah's excitement for this future day with a reminder of the judgment that not many would escape. Even in the celebration, he says, Look, I need, to, I need to make sure you understand what's happening here. Like, judgment is coming, survival is real. But catch this we haven't seen this day fully, I don't think. See, I believe that it will come. Fully with the return of Christ. I think this day that we're talking about, we've seen a a partial uh, portion of this in the sense that we see the nations already coming to faith in Christ. Most of us, if not all of us, are a testimony of that. But I believe there is more yet to come in this day. On that day, they will see Jesus as glorious and beautiful, just as God does. But beauty here, I believe, speaks of the comeliness of Christ, the Messiah that they looked forward to. He is pleasant to the eyes and the hearts of the surviving daughters of Zion who just lost everything that they lived for and sought to make themselves beautiful with. Here we find they will be destitute, possessing a heap of rubble, shameful and nameless, when the beauty of the Lord will arise full of glory. And a word, this word for glory, speaks of the very presence of God that's going to be with them. But catch what happens. This barren land that had been left by war, he says it's going to spring forth with life and fruit. I mean, do you see the curse reverse that this king ushers in? I mean, that's what's happening. This king is undoing all that has been lost. Did you see how God created us in Genesis 1 to exercise dominion over the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill it? Do you know that God made you for that? That's what God has made us for. Have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply it. And here what we find is really a reversal of what happened in Genesis 3 when man sinned against God. God told man, catch this, you were made to be fruitful and multiply, but now whenever you work in the ground because of your sin, it's affected even the soil so that it's going to produce thorns and thistles rather than the fruit that you want. But here we have a picture of the reversal. God says the ground is going to be fruitful again. So don't miss this curse reverse. When the Messiah shows up, the devastated land becomes fruitful. Death is replaced with life. And while those daughters of Zion placed all of their attention on and confidence in seeking to make themselves beautiful according to worldly standards, that didn't take into account how God viewed them. They did not care how God looked upon them in their sin and their shame until they lost everything. And that's when they started paying attention. See, they cared about how the world looked at them. They did not care about how God looked at them. Brothers and sisters, that's always, I believe, a healthy warning for us to be reminded that what matters most is how God sees you and how God sees us. How does God see you this morning? See, here what we find is they receive something better than their worldly honor and pride that was stripped from them. They received the beautiful and glorious branch of Yahweh, the Messiah, who would give them a new identity. What a better day and a better name than anything they could create for themselves. You know, we have the same picture of a king showing up and then the fruit returning elsewhere. So if you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a similar vision in Ezekiel 34, where he speaks of a good shepherd from David who would show up. And after that, once he shows up, the same time, we all of a sudden see the tree sprouting fruit again. Why is that? Because this king would usher in a new creation that would restore all that had been lost. See, when this king arrives, he restores the fortunes of his people, giving them an otherworldly, divine, eternal, radiant beauty, unlike anything that they've seen before, removing their shame and giving them a new name. That is the one that those seven women ultimately needed. They needed Jesus. See, this branch doesn't merely bear its own fruit. He restores fruit to the entire land. That's where the fruit's coming from. It's not just one branch with a little bit of fruit. The whole land responds to what happens with this branch. Now catch this, I really believe that every human desires to be beautiful, but we don't merely seek to make ourselves more beautiful and attractive through plastic surgery, do we? I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we are looking to make ourselves more attractive, and usually it's, it's physical, right? So we're going to the gym and we're trying to work out more. You know, we want to maybe look like models or the actors. Some starve themselves. Others spend lots of money they don't have on nice clothes, jewelry, flashy cars. Some of us spiritually try to make ourselves look better to God based on our own works, right? We want God to receive us because what we have done for Him, forgetting that everything that we receive is ultimately His fruit anyway... See, some of us desire beauty for different reasons, and maybe it's because you long for companionship, or maybe you've noticed the power that beauty can exert over others. But none of these things are bad in and of themselves. These things that we, we love and seek value in, but any one of these things could become a bad God if we give it control over our lives, and we begin to find our identity in it rather than our identity in God. But the reality is that God sent Jesus To give you and me the beauty that we all were made to desire. And that's the beauty that we desire in the eyes of God himself. So you want to be beautiful and lovely before your God, before your creator. You know that paradise was lost when we fell. You sense that. You sense the fact that you don't look as you desire to before your God who made you. But catch this. Here's the promise. God says in verses 3 to 4, he gives us this image of God restoring and purifying his remnant. In other words, God will provide for His people what they long for. He will give it to them. And we see this in verses 3-4. to Look there with me again. And as you look there, let me just ask you, did you know that God always had a zeal for the purity of His people? Did you know that He has a zeal for His people being holy? God does. There's no one that has a desire for His people to be holy like God does. Sin is ugly to God, and holiness is beautiful in His sight. But verses 3 to 4 tell us that God actually disciplines his people to make his aspirational goals for their purity actual, right? So he has disciplined them so that he can make his aspirational desires and goals for their holiness actual. Look at verses 3 to 4 and how he says it. This is what he says. He says, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. See, here we see, I think, a few things about the nature of what God does with this remnant. One, did you notice that he gives them a new name? Now, you'll remember that God speaks of his remnant often in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans 9, 6, when he says, Not all of Israel is truly... Of Israel, right? In other words, not all of physical Israel is spiritually God's. There is not everyone that is part of the physical nation actually has put their faith in God, their trust in him, have identified with God. And so the remnant are those who we are told God calls to himself and preserves for himself. So you'll remember in 1st King 19, we get an image of this, this remnant, where Elijah, he's just called down, he has prayed down fire from heaven, and defeated the hundreds of the, the priest of Baal, right? He has is, he is just done basically like pretty much as much as you can do to show the power of God this side of the return of Jesus. And as he does that, we find in the very next chapter that he's running from a woman, Jezebel, right? And he's hiding, and he's scared. And he says in 1 Kings 19, God, I am running from my life, and I only I, I am left. In other words, it's just me. Nobody, you don't have anybody else but me, and things are not looking good. And you'll remember that God, he comes and he cares for Elijah, and he speaks to him a little bit. And then at the end, he says, and by the way, your math's off. I have 7,000 that haven't yet bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I have preserved a multitude that you don't even know about, I am at work in places that you do not see. You're discouraged, but you don't see the full picture like I do. I will always preserve a people for my glory. I will win in the end. It's not dependent on you, Elijah, the things that you see or the things that you do. I am the God of glory. I will bring about all that I have promised. You can count on that. And that's exactly the theology that we get from this word remnant. It's a word that says that God never gives up on his people, and God never loses. God will keep his word, and he will bring about all that he has promised. We will persevere to the end, brothers and sisters, because he preserves us. The hand of God protects us. He does not let us go. He doesn't lose his grip. He never slips. Our God will hold us fast. That's the rich theology of the remnant.
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.